The Energy Matters to You podcast is a communication platform that features technologies and thought leaders working to advance energy efficiency. Energy Matters to You seeks to connect buyers with sellers so that practical, cost-effective energy efficiency and sustainable energy solutions continue to gain market traction. And now your hosts, Ron Galuli and Leo Ryan. Hello and welcome to Energy Matters to You. My name is Leo Ryan. As always, co-host Ron Galuli on the line there. Beginning of March Madness. Ron, uh, you got your uh, your brackets kind of laid out yet? Are you thinking about it? It's tournament weekend. We're due to have bracketology here. My wife's a big basketball fan. There is basketball on the TV every night. So we did watch that, or I watched part of the DePaul, I think it was Creighton, Creighton maybe? No, Xavier. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, DePaul was leading most of the way. And, uh, you know, there's always uh, excitement in March. That's right. Sean Sean Miller, the Xavier coach, he said, the best team over the final four minutes is the winner of this game. It's all that matters. Yep. He was right. That was exciting. Yeah. Good stuff. All right. And uh, speaking of good stuff, a lot of of good stuff going on with uh, AWE. Yeah. uh, Our April meeting is a site tour at Keurig, Dr. Pepper in Burlington for an overview of their energy initiatives and a site tour. As always, we're looking for chapter sponsors. As you know, chapter sponsors are mentioned at the end of the podcast and are welcome to be a guest on our, our show as well. Well, we've got a great guest today. And it's kind of interesting because um, I, among my, my hobbies away from podcasting, podcasting occupies a lot of my time and focus, but also um, teach yoga, collect puppets. And I also do advanced fusion reactor design. I'm not sure that you're aware of that, but uh, in my spare time, that's... I, I didn't I didn't know that. I mean, I tell my kids because I work for Lidos that I developed those uh, screening booths that you see at the airport in the basement here. Yeah, <laughs> they don't know what to do. But but seriously, we so we have Jackson Stanley with us, who's very passionate about uh, nuclear energy and uh, its uh, ability to solve uh, both our uh, energy needs as well as some climate issues. And so I want to welcome uh, Jackson Stanley to Energy Matters to you. Thank you very much. Good morning. Good morning. So good to have you here. And I think it'd be great if, uh, Jackson, if you just started with a little bit about uh, who you are and why you're here and uh, get the message and we'll dive in a little deeper. Absolutely. So as this wonderful introduction has said, my name is Jackson Stanley. I'm a senior of mechanical engineering at the University of Cincinnati, and I am part of the mandatory co-op program. So I've done five semesters of work, three of which have been at the Idaho National Laboratory and starting in May at Commonwealth Fusion Systems. How'd you end up at the Idaho National Laboratory? So what's funny is that the university actually places you quite well with what you're interested in. And I was interested in nuclear. I did a project my freshman year about nuclear waste storage. And then I woke up one night, I just couldn't sleep. And I just started going through my Mark Standard Handbook for Mechanical Engineers. If you, if those of you that are mechanical engineers, you'll have one of those sitting on your shelf, maybe collecting some dust. I went to the nuclear selection and started reading. And then I realized I was like, I should do this. So mm-hmm. I reached out to my advisor and they placed me with a contact and another contact. And finally, a, a UC alumni at the Idaho National Laboratory. I reached out to him on LinkedIn and, and the rest is history. So you explain, so are you, you're mechanical engineering, that's your course of study? That's right. Yep. And uh, right. with, with the focus on nuclear, is that, a, is that available? It, it is. But so what's funny is that there are no big time nuclear courses offered at the university. And the way I look at it is this is my passion, right? There are many people in the nuclear field who do not have nuclear engineering degrees. And quite frankly, a lot of those degrees left the country. 
in the 90s and 80s, those programs closed down. And now a large majority of nuclear engineers are mechanical, chemical. They have different backgrounds, but we're competing with those nuclear engineers by gaining our, our experience through our work. Interesting. Okay, super. So you're at the Idaho National Laboratory. You've been there for a little bit. Tell us a little bit about the, the objectives of the, the Idaho National Laboratory. What are they working on and how does that uh, intersect with your passion around um, nuclear energy and fusion? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So the Idaho National Laboratory is one of 16 national laboratories in the United States. And their role is clean, carbon-free electricity research. So they do everything from grid applications to developing nuclear fuels. But nuclear has always been their, their hallmark asset. And originally called the National Reactor Test Facility or Test Station, their job was to test these experimental nuclear reactors. So as part of a continuation of their legacy, they are building right now, I think, three experimental fission reactors on site. And that's what I'm involved in is, is one of those reactors. All right. So let's, we're going we're gonna to let a chance to, to, to let you dive right in and uh, be the defender of, explainer of uh, <laughs> nuclear fusion. But I'll, I'll start by saying that, that uh, nuclear is just a bad idea, right? There's so much, uh, I, and I don't want to share this one way or another, but it's just a bad idea. There's uh, so much community resistance. There's all kinds of citing concerns. The yeah. fact the useful life of a, of a fission reactor is, you know, tens of years, not hundreds of years. And then you're left with a legacy product of waste that has, a, a, you know, a half-life of 10,000 years that we're managing that waste. So with that kind of introduction, Jackson, <laughs> talk to me, speak to me, convince me otherwise that, uh, that this is worth spending time and attention on. Well, and rightfully so, anyone who has that understanding of nuclear will realize that the basis of it is it, it really was formed in tragedy you know if you look at coal and and oil and natural gas when i think of those things at least i think of a oil painting from the 30s of you know early guys digging coal out of a shaft and i don't think about the tens of thousands of people who got black lung and died but when we think about nuclear what do we think about we think about the mistake we made you know, in 1945, when we dropped atomic bombs. And that was our introdu introduction to this power source was out of violence. That was, the, you know, the American public's first introduction, which is not a great starting point on selling it, right? Because now we have inherently tied that image of the nuclear bomb to the power plant. And that's a huge mistake. You know, nuclear reactors, nuclear power generating stations are not and ha do not have the capability to do what nuclear weapons do. And once we separate that and we understand that, then we can start focusing on how nuclear power is clean, it it's becoming safer, and it's providing carbon-free electricity that we desperately need. Yeah, well, I can't argue with the, uh, the benefits that you took off there, but uh, and, and agree that uh, the introduction of nuclear into, into the world is, a, is in, the, in the form of a destructive weapon. But, you know, the productive uh, harnessing of, of nuclear power, there, there's been some tragedies around that. And I just think of the two that come to mind is the Three Mile Island and Fukushima. Both mm -hmm. those reactors, for, for different reasons, one, one a mechanical failure inside and one an external environmental issue that, 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 that interrupted it. So um, these, are, these are big issues. And they're, they're ones that, you know, any sited um, uh, generating facility is going to face. 
And if, mm-hmm. the, if, if the hazards of, of the nuclear power are such that the, those areas three, around Three Mile Island and Fukushima are uninhabitable for, for decades, that's a dangerous legacy. That's a dangerous um, uh, energy source to put on the planet. And, and there, that, that, that might be a mindset that people hold when they don't see the larger picture, right? So, so if we look at, okay, Three Mile Island, there was no significant radiation release to the atmosphere. We know that. We study it. We study it today. And we disposed of that waste when that reactor incident happened. You know, it was really a, a, a user error. And as humans, we need to expect the fact that user errors will happen, right? That isn't to say that the technology wasn't inherently safe. The reactor did what it was supposed to do. You know, in Three Mile Island, that unit did in fact melt down. But the containment vessel that it was contained in did work. Right, and it did not release a significant amount of radiation to the atmosphere. In Fukushima, a 100-foot-tall wave of water went <laughs> directly into the side of a nuclear power plant. I mean, this is not something that we consider. But what what we do consider are things that are significant threats, like airplane crashes into nuclear power plants. Those are things that we actually do consider, and that might shock some people. Right, like. There are some off-normal conditions that are pretty serious. Earthquakes, earthquake prevention systems, you know, those are inherent in the design that we make. So as we evolve the technology, those are only to become more robust. Yeah, well said. So we started, I, I started in framing this about the, the kinds of objections that I bring, that many people bring to, to nuclear power. And mm-hmm. I think I'll, I'll just, just shift here a little bit and just allow you to talk about, about this advanced fusion reactor why it's different and what it provides. And before right. you launch into that, uh, Ron, um, did you want to bring in something in? Yeah, I just wanted to mention, uh, Jackson did a great presentation in January with the, the AWE in Energy Outlook meeting. And uh, I, thought, I thought the same thing, you know, how are you going to get over the public perception of this? But coincidentally, the next day I was listening to podcasts that people are taking a different look at nuclear they're looking at the trade-offs between energy independence and some of the high prices that you saw this past winter for gas and electricity. And they're also looking at the carbon-free benefit because global warming is such a big issue and people see that as there's, there's a big trade-off there between emission-free power and, and global warming. Yeah, well said. Yeah, and uh, and part of the reason that uh, Jackson that you're here is because you did such a nice job with the AW presentation. So, now, if you would just um, just lay out yeah. the case for us on advanced fusion. So, what's interesting is so in distinction from fission, right? So, fusion reactors are have been studied since the '50s. Fusion is a form of energy that's almost I don't want to say the reverse of fission, but instead of breaking down heavy atoms like uranium that spontaneously undergo fission. They break apart, release a neutron. With fusion, you actually have to fuse two different types of material, deuterium and tritium, which are isotopes of hydrogen. And as they as they fuse, they release energy and they release a little bit of radiation and they release another neutron that then keeps the chain going, just as you would in fission. The challenges that we're facing in that front of technology, and what's interested me in getting into that field, is that for at least my education, my formal education, and maybe even the little that you guys have learned in your lives about this, because really not a significant amount of movement has been made since since 
it are out in, in France was, you know, laid the groundwork in the Reagan administration. That was the last big hurrah, right? We're going to build this thing. And just now it's gaining steam. It, it takes an, an incredible feat of, of technology to do. And it basically requires that you replicate what's going on in our sun, the fusion of light nuclei to create energy here on Earth. And we don't have a giant ball of flaming gas to <laughs> assist us. So we have to confine that with man-made materials. But what's interested me is that for my education, I've been told it's 40 years down the line, it'll never happen. I've heard people in the industry, in the fish industry say, it'll never happen, right? And just now I'm coming around as I'm looking forward towards working with Commonwealth Fusion Systems. This could happen. And if you think about it, and what, I, what I've read that there's a kind of a uh, soundbite people like to say in the fusion industry that a glass of water contains enough fuel in fusion to provide enough power for one person for their entire life. If you think about the power density of that, right, even compared to fission, which is currently the most um, adv advanced and most sophisticated form of conversion between mass and energy that we have, you know, commercially available, that's insane think about right and that we could bring that onto the market and that we could power our homes with that and make our world better with that that's what excites me excellent yeah and you know ron you 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 um alluded to it there's a, there's a lot of discussion in the global environmental world about you know the negative impacts of all our carbon-based fuels and uh, a desire for developing nations to replicate the the lifestyles of the modernized West, which requires an awful lot of power. And what we have on the market is all carbon-based fuels. So if we build more coal-fired plants in China, as their standard of living comes up, we just emit more carbon into the atmosphere. So there's a lot of bright environmentalists who say, listen, the only solution to providing that standard of living, that energy consumption per capita, is by introducing more nuclear power onto the planet. And uh, so, Jackson, I, I think that you, this is a nice transition from kind of the foundation differential between fission and fusion. And fusion doesn't have the, 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 the big negative, the fact that we have a long-standing uh, waste product that needs to be managed very carefully for uh, thousands of years. So fusion doesn't have that as a byproduct of generation. Correct. So we've got we've got we've got companies financed now by by large groups and a Commonwealth Fusion Systems in Devon's mass is on that path. Can you tell us a little bit about what they're doing, the information they're putting out, the, the, the seat yeah. that they sit in? Yeah, absolutely. So they're a spinoff of MIT. And what's very interesting about them is that, actually, I think it was, was it two years now? Or I think it was two years now that they had their magnets featured in Wired magazine. They currently have some of the most powerful, if not the most powerful superconducting magnets in the world to contain this, this, this plasma right? Their fuel. And, and the way that they're, that they're going to make this work is through magnetic confinement. Now, for those that have been following the news at all in the past couple of weeks, past couple of months, you might've heard a little bit about the recent fusion breakthrough that happened at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. That was a net positive for a couple milliseconds, or I think a couple thousands of seconds where they actually were able to accelerate their fuel to hit a target in their, in, in, their, in their laser ablation system. And as it hit their target, it created more energy out than they put in. 
that's the first time that we've actually been able to prove with fusion, right, that that can be done. And there are two camps here. You have, you have the accelerator camp, which is what, you know, Lawrence Livermore is in right now at the National Ignition Facility, right? And then you have these other companies that are doing the magnetic confinement, right? So those are the two camps of, of fusion. And Commonwealth Fusion is going that magnetic confinement way. What's interesting about that is that the amount of material needed in order to contain your fuel, right, is much less. The track to accelerate these particles that actually created this, this fusion breakthrough at Lawrence Livermore was over three miles long. Think about all the material it takes to build something like that. Think about the, the facility. It's huge, right? I've seen renderings, artistic renderings of someone standing next to these, the, these fusion reactors that Commonwealth Fusion would like to, to build, first being their, their demonstration reactor, Spark, and then their, um, their power production reactor, ARC. I believe that's how they're naming them. But these things are much smaller, much more efficient, much more compact versus these laser acceleration fusion devices, right? So the technology is evolving and the technology as it evolves, it's bringing uh, this power generation system. I think we could see it being a big part of our market by 2040. I think that's definitely a possibility. Well, that's not far away. And think about um, if that's going to happen, the utilities are going to be involved. And Ron, <laughs> you've got the uh, the deepest perspective on that. Think about, you know, utilities have evolved their business model. So they don't just generate power. They also transmit and distribute. And they've on both sides of the fence from consumer and producer and transmitter. So Ron, how do you, how do you see the utilities being folded in or not, not for, or resisted at the, at the utility level? Well, a lot of uh, companies and utilities have serious goals, net zero type goals by 2050. So the timing of this seems to be perfect for, for those goals, because right now you still need base load. You have gas, you have some existing nuclear, but that needs to be replaced. And the timing of that, those plants will be due to be replaced about that time. So I think you're going to see a lot of changes in the marketplace and you have the advent of electrification. So if anything, the loads are going to go up and it's going to be not only managing those loads, but also you need to introduce new new supply resources. So it'd be really interesting to see how the market develops. Jackson, we, we do try to keep these podcasts to, to under 20 minutes or so. So we'd love to keep chatting. But if there, if there was a message that you wanted to get out to, to the listeners, what, what would that message be? It would probably be that if you were to go out to your living room or your kitchen or your bedroom and, and look at that light bulb there that's lighting your room and think about all the people and all the energy it takes to light that, right? And then think about where it comes from today versus where it would come from in 2040, right? Some of it might come from coal or gas or oil. And then think about what the future holds. It could come from something that's clean, useful, and utilitarian. Excellent. Well, Jackson, Stanley, I want to thank you for your, your passion, and your curiosity, and the work that you and uh, Commonwealth Fusion Systems are doing to, to, to advance and, and you know, pr- uh, to, to investigate, to evaluate the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the benefits of uh, different sources of power. Awesome. Thank you very much. Thanks, well, Jackson. I think, uh, I think uh, 15, 18 minutes, we've covered everything that could be covered regarding nuclear energy. So if you listen to this podcast, you're all set. <laughs> <laughs> no, oh. listen. 
Clearly. And it's good to have people like, like Jackson doing the work, gathering the information. Because we, you know, we often, we, uh, our lives are busy and we have perspectives built on our own personal histories. And it's through that, that curiosity and intellectual development that we, that we, uh, we, we find new pathways. So uh, again, we're very appreciative for, for Jackson and the work he's doing. Yeah, absolutely. Ron, anything else we need to know about uh, Energy Matters to you and AWE? We do have uh, another guest on schedule or proposed schedule. So we've seen an increase in interest in the podcast since we've partnered with AWE. So it's, uh, that's a good thing. Yeah, that's absolutely true. We're seeing more downloads. We're seeing more postings across LinkedIn, yeah. which is our primary source of communication. So just invite folks that, uh, that are involved and engaged with us. Continue to do that so we draw a big, bigger audience and, and uh, interesting guests. So uh, Jackson Stanley, thanks for being part of it. On behalf of uh, Ron Galuli and Leo Ryans, it's been Energy Matters to you. There's work to be done. Go make a difference. Support for Energy Matters to you comes from Rise Engineering, Raytheon, Mechanical Insulation Solutions Network, AHA Consulting Engineers, GDS Associates, FMC Technologies Incorporated, Acela Energy Group, Lidos, Conservation Solutions Corporation, Energy Management Associates Incorporated, New Ecology Incorporated, Sane Engineering Associates Incorporated, and B2Q Associates. For more from Energy Matters to You, visit aeenewengland.org slash podcasts. For more information from the Association of Energy Engineers, New England Chapter, visit aeenewengland.org.